We've been moving through the book of Leviticus for the past several months. We come this morning to Leviticus chapter 10, and our New Testament complementary passage is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. I don't normally do this, but let me do just remind you, this is a very visual scene that is being painted in, in Leviticus. This is visual. So as we read it, I want you to envision. I want you to envision the narrative that, that's going on. But let us also, as we envision it, pay careful attention because it is the inspired word of God. And so in honor of that inspired word, with your Bibles open to Revelation 21, please stand. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, hear God's word. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Leviticus chapter 10, continuing in the reading of God's word. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Hezaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the tent. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, Bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did, according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings, and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifice of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. 
The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever as the Lord has commanded. And Moses diligently inquired about the goats of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? When Moses heard that, he approved. As far as the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray that you would open our eyes. Change our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm guessing if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know the story of Nadab and Abihu, and you probably come in with some preconceived notions. That was a little harsh. Another thing, if this is the first time you've read all of chapter 10, you might think, after this horrific scene, Moses immediately turns to Aaron and starts talking about recipes. Stuff to eat, and how to eat it, and where to, and grain, and it. That's a bit abrupt. The reason is because this is all part of a grand story. This story begins, this section of this story begins really, I guess, with the Bible. And the story is, we were created in a perfect place. We were created to walk with God. We were created to be in harmony with each other. And a serpent entered into that garden. And Jesus Christ came and became the serpent upon the cross, lifted up in the wilderness, and took your sin and my sin if you recognize your need for a Savior and throw yourself upon Him. Now, lest you think I just began with the conclusion, no, that's the story. That's the story of the whole Bible. This particular section of the story... How do we get back to this place of harmony? How do we get back to this place of peace? How do we get back to this place where I don't hate myself? Where I don't hate where God has put me? I don't hate the people around me where I'm not angry and bitter and questioning and all the broken. How do I get back? And that's really the story. God gives us this great story at Sinai. He begins it in Exodus chapter 18. He ends it at Numbers chapter 9. He divides it into seven unique sections. The first part opens with this beautiful marriage vow. He invites Moses and Aaron as the representatives to come, and then he gives to them the promises of the marriage covenant. 
He uses the language of marriage. I brought you, I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. The language of the bridegroom. Later prophets will say that Israel has committed adultery. Think Hosea. Where did they get married? If you're going to commit adultery, you got to get married. <laughs> they got married at Sinai. And they're referred to as God's bride ever since. And so now he's given these ways in which we can now live in harmony. The rest of Exodus is this story of a recreation of Eden itself. The Holy of Holies with gold and the mercy seat and God's presence over the mercy seat. The angels representing this is where God dwells. He dwells between the cherubim. He dwells over the seat of mercy. This place of gold in front of which is another golden table with bread. Off to the side is a golden lampstand that shines light in this warm and glowing room. Silver embroidery and all the stuff that we've looked at. All this recreation of Eden and yet a tent that moves together with the people through the tabernacle. And the problem of Exodus is it ends in Exodus with God's glory coming into the tabernacle and Moses being left outside. How do we get back in? And so Leviticus opens the sacrificial system. And if you've been with us, then it built up to Leviticus chapter 9, the passage we looked at last week where Aaron and his sons are consecrated. And Aaron catches the blood of those bulls in the bowls that his, I'm sorry, his sons catch the blood. Aaron dips his hand in those bowls of blood, puts them on the horns of the altar, and then raises them in benediction. That's visual. That's striking. And then we come to 10. This is abrupt. (laughs) And Nadab and Abihu made a mistake, lit it with a Bic lighter instead of the appropriate match, and God blew them to smithereens. And then Moses started talking about recipes. And then at the end, God approved. So it could seem a little odd, it could seem a little abrupt, but I hope that as we go through this chapter very, very briefly, I promise you, we will see two things. We will see sins of commission, and we will see sins of omission. And you know what the problem from all of our society, all the way from the biggest, the most historic, the trajectory of history, socioeconomic battles and wars, all the way down to whatever theological thing you're into this minute. We're all trying to find Eden. We're trying to find righteousness. We're trying to find healing. We're trying to find home. And as soon as we get there, we mess it up. And that's exactly what happens here. We've come to this place at the end of Leviticus chapter 9 where they've had this week-long process of consecration and healing and sacrifice and blessing and the people see the glory of God. And as soon as we get involved, 
Nadab and Abihu do what they do. But interestingly, what you may not have thought of before, you're familiar with Nadab and Abihu and the story of Nadab and Abihu. Would you honestly say that you are equally familiar with the story of Eleazar and Ithamar? Nadab and Abihu stands out in our minds. But did you notice the continual repetition of the word survived? Moses intends for us to be looking at this entire thing together. He doesn't intend for us to go, woo, Nadab and Abihu, and then shut our Bibles because then it gets boring and we get back into the recipes. He intends for us to be seeing this together and it's lumped together under the category of sins of commission and sins of omission. Now, the key question is, for us at least, for those of us who look at a piece of literature, who try to study the characters and figure out what's going on, what was going on in Nadab and Abihu's heart? Because it certainly does seem that God was capricious here. Extreme. Some commentators will look at, and if you've got your Bible open, Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9 and the stern injunction that the priest from here on out is never, ever, ever, (laughs) ever, ever, ever to touch wine or strong drink before he goes into the house of God. It could be Nadab and Abihu were a little bit exuberant after seven days of this consecration service and the joy and the, the excitement and... That explains why verse 9 just happens to be in Leviticus chapter 10. But that's a supposition. The fact of the matter, and here's what's important. Here's what I want you to get. The fact of the matter is we don't know. Moses doesn't focus on it. That's not the purpose of the narrator. The narrator does not say Nadab and Abihu were disrespectful and got wasted. And went and led worship. That's not the narrative's, the, the narrator's purpose. What the narrator's purpose is to demonstrate is God's heart. The only one whose emotions we see in this, in this event, we see it in verse 3. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That's the only thing we know about anybody's motivation in this whole scene. But step back and take a look at the scene. Where does God dwell? He dwells between the cherubim over the mercy seat. From where does the fire come? Verse 3, it comes from the presence of the Lord. That fire shoots across the mercy seat. And then later, down in verse 5, they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp. 
the vengeance of God shoots forth from the mercy seat, destroys Nadab and Abihu, but not their clothing. Now that's a visual scene. Those priestly garments that they have been dressed with, if the fire from God is enough to destroy Nadab and Abihu, it most certainly is enough to destroy whatever linen coats were on their bodies. But those coats remain. Moses, God through Moses, is setting up a very specific visual image. And it's reinforced by God's statement, I will be sanctified by those who are near me, and I will be glorified. Because, beloved, Nadab and Abihu, whatever their motivation is, did what God said don't do. The only fire that is ever to touch the burnt offering, the only fire that is ever to be used on God's altar is that fire that he himself lit just the previous chapter. He was the one who lit the fire of the burnt offering. And that was the fire of God. And whatever was in Nadab and Abihu's heart, we have no idea. But we do know they did what he told them not to do. And one of the lessons I think we take from this, before I move very briefly into my second point, one of the lessons I think we take from this is the reason that God gets so the force of God's judgment here is that this worship service was never about what Nadab and Abihu thought God would like. Worship is not about you and me. Worship is a reenactment of the divine gospel. That's why God is so particular with all this. And you'll see later, in the second half of this, you'll see that God is very upset also with Eleazar and Ithamar. And Aaron's like standing in between going, I don't know what to do. My son's just got blown up and you told me not even to cry for him. And now you're telling I don't know what to do, God. That's our scene. That's what's going on in this chapter. But the bigger scene is this is the gospel. This is how you and I mess it up as soon as we start messing with it. But worship itself is the gospel. It's a call to come through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an acknowledgement in the confession of sin that we are sinners and we need His grace. It's an acknowledgement joyfully in the assurance of pardon and the responding, singing the prayers. Why do we sing these old hymns? Because they're prayers that have been written hundreds and hundreds of years ago by the church invisible. Men and women throughout the history of the church that have lifted up these praises that encourage you and me today. That's why we sing these old, dry, dusty things. Because if they're old and dry and dusty, it's your and my heart that is. 
If we can't resonate with the sounds of saints that have triumphantly marched before us and know that we are headed home in worship, God speaking to us, God calling us, all of this that the tabernacle is, and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar have absolutely no right to monkey with it one iota, and neither do you or me. That's one point of application. Let's look very briefly at, and this is again, this is just the way we all mess it up. We all mess it up. Sins of commission, but also sins of omission. Verses 12 and following, Eleazar and Ithamar. Why aren't you eating the fellowship meal? And the answer is understandable. Aaron says, (laughs) which one of us is better than Aaron on this one? (laughs) I just saw my sons annihilated from the inside out, apparently, and was told not even to weep. And now I'm supposed to fellowship? I'm supposed to eat the meat of fellowship? I don't want to do this at all. I am horrified. I am terrified. What do I do? I froze in my tracks. That's essentially Aaron's response. I want you to see how tender God's mercy is here. Because what was the core underlying thing that connected Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar? They all violated the regulated principle of worship. (laughs) All of them did. The shocker is not Nadab and Abihu. (laughs) The shocker is why not Eleazar and Ithamar? That's what is intriguing about this scene. Why not Eleazar and Ithamar? And I think the difference has to be at the heart. Because at least with Aaron, we get the question, why? With Nahab and Abihu, there's no question. There is no addressing of the motivation. But with Aaron, we get the why question. Which means that the searcher of hearts is looking on the heart. And he sees the mer- with mercy the tender failure. And he sees with discipline the high-handed disobedience. He sees with the compassionate eye the penitent sinner. And with the same face looks in wrath, in judgment upon the high-handed. Because, beloved, the fire of God will come down upon all that is evil. And the question is, will it come down upon Jesus Christ, under whom you stand, 
or will it come down directly upon your head? Because what we see in Leviticus chapter 10 is nothing less than a dramatic pre reconditioning, reenactment, a pre-enactment <laughs> of the division of the sheep and the goats. The final judgment. Enter into blessing. Depart, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Be consumed in fire. What we are seeing here is a pre-view of what Jesus will call you and me to. When he says, there is a day, there is an hour, there is a moment. And those screams that I'm sure came up from all four sons. One of those were screams that it was too late. And the other were screams for mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Screams not to do to our failure what we have seen done. Cries for mercy and understanding. And look one last time at Leviticus chapter 10. And the Lord approved. And beloved, he can not because he's capricious, not because he just decided to pounce and flick Nadab and Abihu because they weren't perfect and not flick Eleazar and Ithamar. He absolutely brought that same judgment down. And I don't know how prior to the coming of Christ we know that Eleazar and Ithamar were looking to this same table. I don't know how. I know there were. I know there's only always been one Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I know that we are all called to look to Him in faith. And maybe it's looking back in faith versus looking forward in faith. I'm not sure of the details of it. But I do know what is right here and right now. That is what I do know. And what I do know right here and right now is that that fire of judgment came down upon Jesus Christ. And your and my only hope is to stand beneath His cross. To recognize your need and His grace. And beloved, if you do, then this becomes not a bitter message. Not a Nadab and a Baihu and an angry demon god flicking flies or pulling their wings off. But what compassion. What mercy to know there is right and wrong To know the judge of all the earth will do what is right. To know that I can rest in Him. To know that nothing can ever go against His will. And how do I know that? Because my Savior is risen. He's seated. He came and He paid the price. But beloved, He is not some teacher. It is not an ethic that stands between you and Eden. It is Jesus Christ. Not an ethic, but a person. A person who says, you are to look at me. You will see me in my word. You will see me in my saints. But you are to look at me. 
If you look at me, you'll be a lot less worried about what other people look like. (laughs) But the more you look at me, the more beautiful you'll become. And looking at him rightly begins with looking at what he did. Father, we do thank you for your great blessing to us. We thank you for that blessing that is in Christ. We thank you for that blessing that secures the promise that heaven and earth will declare the name of Jesus. At his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to your glory. And so, Father, we joyfully do so now. Nourish us in this means of grace, we pray in Christ's name.